0: God just fills those broken parts of us and makes something that is actually more precious and more beautiful because of it. It's a great thing. Um, I'm going to begin this morning by just telling you a bit of a story that you probably are going to have a hard time relating to. Because it's my guess that none of us has ever been through something like this. Maybe one or two of us has been through something close, but When there's war in your hometown, it's a devastating experience. We're praying for Nick, who is still in the Ukraine this week. He'll be finishing up the week there and be back here soon. And uh, I want to encourage you to keep praying for him. But that occurs to me, what those folks are going through there where one day life is normal and every day things are fine. And the next thing you know, there's bombs falling and there's troops coming and there's tanks in the streets and everything is devastation everywhere you go. We don't know what it's like to to go away in the morning come back in the afternoon not sure if your home will be there, not sure if your family will still be alive or if your children have been taken. The, the fear that there's always that threat that, that there could be an invading force any second and that I don't have the power to do anything about it. It it, it robs you of your energy. It robs you of your sense of hope. And, and you live in a state of constant anxiety, constant fear. 1,200 years before the birth of Christ, the people of Israel were going through exactly that. Uh, they had been in the promised land now a relatively short time. Uh, nobody, no, nobody in the younger generation knew anything about the time in the wilderness except what they had heard from their grandparents. And from their grandparents, they had heard stories of this amazing God who who separates waters so you can go through on the dry land, who provides food for you in the desert, who brings water out of a rock, who defeats great armies before you. They had heard all of those stories, but none of them had ever seen anything like that. They were already living in the promised land. They were already comfortable in the promised land, and frankly, when those stories are coming from grandparents and great-grandparents, the stories get bigger as time goes on, and you begin to wonder whether these are really just legends, whether these are really just myths, or, or whether there's really a God who is so powerful and loves you so much that he would do all of this for you, and yet... There's a war in your village. You, you don't know if this God even exists anymore. See, just a figment of the imagination of your grandparents? You don't know if He does exist, whether He's really interested in taking care of you anymore because you look around and we're 100 years into the promised land now, maybe, roughly, and already the people have begun doing the thing that God warned them not to do through Moses and through Joshua. They have quickly adopted the false gods of the pagan people who lived in Canaan, and they have quickly begun to worship Baal, who is this false god in the ancient Near uh, Near East, where they would build these these bulls, statue of bulls, to bail, and they would also have what was called Asherim poles, which would just be basically like a big. Uh you know, uh, uh, telephone pole that would just stick up and it was also a symbol of Baal and you would go to these places called high places and you would make sacrifices to Baal because after all, you've been taught that he controls the weather, he controls fertility, he controls everything that you need in life and so you make these sacrifices to Baal and already the people of Israel have begun to move into that place and God is using Uh, an army called the Midianites to confront his people about this. So these Midianite hordes are coming in, and they're just attacking one village at a time, and then they leave. Then they come and attack another village, and so nobody knows what to do. So what do you do? You run to Baal again. And this process is continuing over and over as these people live in fear. And I want to pick up the story with you in the book of Judges. So take your Old Testament, take your Bible, turn to the Old Testament book of Judges. It's early in the Old Testament, right after the books of Moses and then Joshua, we get to Judges. And I want you to go to Judges chapter 6. And we're going to look at this story together, and then we're going to consider it in light of Satan's favorite lies. We're in Judges chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up in verse... 11, follow along with me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiazarite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house let's just stop there for a second so this guy gideon he he lives there in the promised land he's heard these stories from his parents and grandparents about this God who does wonderful miracles. And so he has sort of a theoretical belief. I mean, he's still a Jew and everything. It's just that he has really no experience with this God. Everything that he has seen seems to indicate that this God has taken a vacation. Maybe he got them into the promised land and just left them there. He's not even aware of the fact that it's the people of Israel who have deserted God and not God who has deserted them, which, by the way, is always the case. If you find yourself far from God, it is not because God walked away from you, amen? That's because you walked away from him. That's what happens. But, but he's living in this reality, hearing these stories about this God, and he's terrified because you have to hide from the invading hordes. He is literally doing work that is meant to be done outdoors, indoors. He's, he's beating out the wheat to get rid of the chaff, but he's doing it inside the wine press, which is a small building, so that at least he's not being seen. And he's doing this in complete fear when suddenly an angel appears to him. And I want to be clear and help us to understand this. This is fascinating as you read your Old Testament. There will be times where you will see in the Old Testament that angels will appear to people. And there are a few times when it says, not an angel, but the angel of the Lord appeared. And whenever it says the angel of the Lord appeared, we're talking about Jesus. As it continues to go on, you're going to find out that this angel of the Lord is actually the pre-incarnate Christ who is coming to Gideon to confront him, to inspire him, and to give him a calling. And And it goes on, as the as the text goes on, you'll notice that Gideon calls him Lord, literally uh, he calls him by the name of God Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on how you want to translate it. Um, and he has this conversation with God. So he's, he's being actually um, visited by God himself. And when God confronts him, hiding in the wine press, his greeting always makes me laugh. He says... In verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. I bet you he laughed. (laughs) O valiant warrior who's hiding in the wine press. O valiant warrior who's so terrified you can't even go out during the daytime. And as we read more about Gideon, we're going to find out. Fear is the word that marks his life, not being a valiant warrior isn't it cool how god can see in us what's there even when we can't see it ourselves he he knows his plan for Gideon he knows what he's going to do with Gideon and so he calls him by who he is making him to be he calls him a valiant warrior and Gideon doesn't believe I mean he may have believed in God but he certainly isn't following God he certainly doesn't trust God look at verse 13 as soon as he gets a chance he says if my uh, oh my Lord if the Lord is with us why has all this happened to us where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about? And he goes on and on. As it, it, I read that, it's almost like reading some of the Facebook posts I see from atheists. If God is so great, why was there an a, um, earthquake in Morocco this weekend? God is so great, how come there's hospitals filled with babies? If God is so great, why are there shootings in the schools? If God is so great, what happened? And to be honest, it's a fair question. And he asked this question. He says, if in fact the Lord is with us, where's the evidence of that? Because what I see is nothing but the suffering of the people who call on the name of the Lord. And God responds, verse 14, he confirms his calling. The Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? But of course, Gideon doesn't believe that God can do great things through him. Look at verse 15. He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. Now Manasseh is one of the 12 tribes of Israel, actually a half tribe. They're they're the bottom of the totem pole, the bottom of the pecking order of the tribes. And he goes, and my father's house is nothing special, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. Of all of the people in Israel that God could use to do something great, I am the last person he would choose. You ever feel that way? that's how he feels and he he shares that with god and god confirms his calling in verse 14 and he realizes though that he is completely unqualified And so God reassures him that he will be with him. By the way, a couple weeks ago, we were looking at the calling of Joshua. Do you remember what God kept saying to Moses and then saying to Joshua? I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you. God doesn't send us to do great things for him. God brings us with him while he does great things. It's not about us and it's not about our strength and it's not about our power. It's about God and what he's doing. And so he reminds him again in verse 16, the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Now, follow along as we pick it up in verse 17. So Gideon said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Uh, apparently, an angel appearing out of nowhere. And, and we can laugh, right? But what does that say about his level of fear? What does that say about his level of distrust in God? What does it say about his level of distrust in himself? That, that even though an angel has appeared to him and is speaking to him, he's like, you know what? I'm going to need uh, to see some ID. Some kind of credentials... Because this is not the sort of thing that happens to me, right? Verse 18. So he says, Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went. In and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah flour to put in the meat to, and put the meat in the basket and the broth in a pot. He brought them to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, "Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on the rock and pour out the broth." And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire sprang up from the rock and consume the meat and the unleavened bread then the angel of the lord vanished from his sight now would you agree there should be no more questions at this point at this point he has watched god do a miracle in his presence he has seen fire come up out of a rock and consume the offering that was made to god and then he has seen god disappear into thin air now He's thinking, what was I smoking after dinner? Because <laughs> something is still not right. He is confused. He is afraid. And here God has not just appeared to him, but told him, you're supposed to go fight the mighty army and deliver these people. It makes absolutely no sense. And by the way, you should expect that when God calls you. That, that this is not something you could plan. It's not something you could carry out. It's not something that fits into your agenda. It makes absolutely no sense. And yet God says, I am calling you. I am empowering you. And I'm going to do this through you. So God reassured him and then disappears. Now, God had told him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the high place and tear down that statue of a bull. And I want you to tear down the Asherah pole, cut it up for wood, use it to make a fire, and then present an offering to me there using the materials that are made from the things that are dedicated to Baal. Now, Gideon is still... Afraid, skip down with me to verse 27. Then Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. He came to the place where he's like, I can no longer pretend that God hasn't proved himself, so I'm going to have to do what he tells me to do, but I'll be darned if I'm going to do it where anybody can see me. (laughs) I am not going to let anybody catch me doing this because the people worship that idol. They'll kill me. They'll kill... The people in my own household will kill me if they know I did this. He's too afraid. And then... Uh, the people do get mad. He goes and does it. The people do get mad as they go down through verse, say, 35. The people get mad because now their worship is interrupted. And Gideon is still afraid, so he tests God. Pick it up in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, "'If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, "'behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor.'" if there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. So Lord, it was a cool trick with the staff and the fire and the disappearing and all that kind of stuff. But I'm still not sure this is you. And, and I'm not actually sure, even if it is you, if I can trust you. So I'm gonna ask you to, pr- please, he says, don't kill me for this. But I'm gonna ask one thing. I'm gonna take this, this wool blanket And I'm going to lay it outside. And here's what needs to happen for me to believe you. If you will fill the wool with the dew while there's no dew anywhere else on the ground, then I'm going to know it was you. Okay? That's what he asked God to do. By the way, um, putting God to the test, not a great idea. So, so don't come away from this going, oh, I want to be like Gideon and test God all the time. I don't suggest it, and the, neither does the scripture. But pick it up uh, in verse um, 38, and it was so, when he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. It worked. He puts out the fleece, and God says, okay, I'll play your game. No water on the ground, only water in the fleece. (laughs) And then he does this, verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please, let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let it be wet on the ground. (laughs) And then God killed him. No, that's not what it says. (laughs) That's why I never even interviewed for the job as God. I I would, (laughs) God did so that night, verse 40, for it was dry only on the fleece and the dew was on all the ground. Every test, God proves himself. Guys, again, we can look at this and we can criticize him for his lack of faith and, and all of that, but can't you relate to him? I relate to him. And I think, you know what? Um, If God's going to ask me to do something crazy, I need to know that I know that I know that I know that he's not going to leave me hanging. And so I I don't blame him for this. And yet, it certainly illustrates something, doesn't it? This is not a man of great faith. This is not a man who knows God well. This is not a man who believes what God says just because God says it. He keeps looking for proof. And so finally, Gideon decided to obey God and trust him. But God wasn't finished. Pick it up in chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, they, they, they changed his name. Jerubbabel means basically he who tears down Baal. So they changed his name. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, And all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned and 10,000 remained. This is the place in the story where I say, You have got to be kidding me, God. You have got to be kidding me. So already we're going to fight this mighty army who has been kicking our tails. We have a trained army that is not capable of defeating these guys. But you want me to just grab some guys from around the town. He puts together 32,000 men who are willing to follow him, which sounds like a lot until you hear that the Midian army is hundreds of thousands. And he's going to go into battle because he's trusting God because of the fleece, you know. And he's trusting God, and he's going to go into battle. And then God says, uh, <clears throat> um, just one thing. There's way too many guys in your army. What are you talking about? Yeah, because if your army wins the battle, they're going to think they did it by their own power. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to get rid of two-thirds of the guys. 22,000 people. He says, if you're afraid and trembling, you can leave. And he didn't even finish his sentence before. They were already on the bus home. They were afraid and they were trembling. I would have been too. 10,000 guys stick around. Those are the most macho guys in Israel. And they stick around. And then pick it up in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, you'll separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps." as well as everyone who kneels to drink. So we're going to go to the stream, and, and some of the guys are going to get down on their knees and stick their face in the water, and other guys are going to bend over and drink from their hand. He says, we're going to separate them that way. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. Thank God, only 300 more have to leave. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300. Send the other 9,700 home. You keep 300 guys. I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands so let all the other people go each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Only 300. Literally no chance apart from a miracle. And that, my friends, is the odds God likes. Literally no chance apart from a miracle. So God commanded him to take his 300 men and go rout the Midianites. Well, at least now he's not afraid anymore, right? Wrong. He is still afraid. Look at verse 10. Or verse 9 Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him Arise go down against the camp for I have given it into your hands But if you're afraid to go down go with Pura your servant down to the camp and you will hear what they say and afterward your hand will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Purah, his servant, down to the outpost of the army, which was in the camp. And if we had time to keep reading, you'd find that when they get to the camp at night, they hear a guy talking to his buddy and saying, hey, I had the weirdest dream. Basically, I dreamed that Israel was gonna wipe us out. And the guy says, that must be a prophecy from the God of Israel. Those guys overhear that, and finally, Gideon's like, I think we're ready for this. Okay? Finally, he trusts God enough to obey him, and he has this really strange plan. Verse 16, he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them, because, you know, that's how you fight. (laughs) (laughs) Trumpets and empty pitchers. It's like, what are we going to do? Ask them for lemonade? What are we we doing? (laughs) Trumpets and empty pitchers. What a brilliant plan. He said to them, look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, for the Lord and for Gideon. So they get down there, they blow the trumpets. The guys blow their trumpets. There's this loud cacophony of trumpets right outside the Midian camp. And then they take their candles and light them. And it's like their little cell phone lights, right? And they take out their cell phone lights. They put them under the pitcher and then they pull them off all at the same time. And suddenly there's light at noise. And the scripture tells us that the army of Midian In the confusion that was taking place, just turned, started swinging their swords, and killed each other. (laughs) It's the Word of God. God showed himself strong that day. Pick it up, verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp, beginning in the middle watch, and they had just posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets, smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hand, and the trumpets in their right hands blowing and cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled." When they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army, and the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards uh, Zerera, as far as the edge of Abomola uh, by Tabith. You know, by Tabith. The, The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. And this was the end of the trouble with Midian. Wow. What an incredible story. You say, well, Pastor Doug, um, thanks for the story. What does this have to do with Satan's favorite lies? Good question. Um, let me ask you a question. Do you ever expect God to use you like that? Do you ever expect God? to do something through you like he just did through Gideon? Do you you think God's plan for your life is that you are to be as significant in his kingdom expansion as, I don't know, uh, Abraham, Moses, uh, David, Peter, Paul? When you get up in the morning, do you think God's probably gonna use me like that today? Of course not. Those guys are Bible heroes. Those guys are spiritual giants. I'm afraid that too many of us have believed the lie that God cannot use me for anything great. And we have bought into this lie because we've become comfortable in our little lives and the last thing we want to do is live out there on the cutting edge where great things happen. And so we stay back from the edge where we're comfortable and we come to church and we read our Bibles now and then and we pray over our meals and we give God his due. But beyond that, my life is sort of my life and I'm gonna do it my way and it doesn't even occur to us that maybe I was put on this earth for something big than this and we're in the wine press beating out the wheat afraid and we think well God couldn't use me for anything let me tell you something Abraham the father of the faithful was a pagan living in a pagan land with no knowledge of God whatsoever when God called him and by the way as he followed God he made some rather significant blunders. He gave his wife away not once but twice. That's not good for your marriage. <laughs> I guess it depends on your wife. <laughs> but he, he gives his wife away, and then, and then when his wife cannot bear children, she's so depressed that she comes to him in her old age, and she says, look, I'm old. I'm never going to be able to give you a child. I'll tell you what. I got this beautiful young maiden who is my maidservant. Why don't you just go sleep with her? And he goes, okay. That that actually sounds, I'm surprised that was your idea, but, you know, actually, I'm okay with that. And... I always when I talk about I always have to say to the husbands if your wife ever catches you looking at another woman and says, "Oh, why don't you just go be with her?" Don't. <laughs> it's a trap. So that's Abraham. That's how great he was. Moses was an 80-year-old burnt out shepherd who had to flee Egypt because he couldn't keep his temper under control. He had his chance. He could have made a difference in Egypt. He was in a great position to help the children of Israel, but his hot temper got the best of him, and he ends up having to flee from the wilderness because he kills a man. He had been hanging out with sheep in the wilderness for 40 years when he happened to notice a bush on fire that wasn't getting burned up. And the rest is history. David was a runt, the youngest in an unimpressive family, just like Gideon. And he made some huge mistakes. I mean, adultery, murder, among other major blunders. And he is known forever as a man after God's own heart. And Jesus is called the son of David. Peter looked Jesus in the eye and swore that he would never deny him. And a few hours later, he denied him three times. Paul made his living killing Christians because they worshiped Jesus before God went and grabbed him and gave him a ministry. Lazarus never made any impact for Jesus till he was dead. Now tell me again, how come God can't use you? You guys, God chooses weak people. You know why? That's His only option. We're all weak people. God works through those who will never get the credit because they couldn't possibly do it on their own. And when you are strong and when you are rich and when you are powerful and when you are influential, God goes, you know what? There's too many people in your army. I'm going to let you go through some stuff. I'm going to let you become a broken vessel so I can fill you with the gold and turn you into something truly fabulous. And then people will know it was me. When I, when I came to Christ, I was 14. And within a year, I began to have this strong sense and, my, and the sense was basically this, God wanted to use me in the same way he used Moses, David, and Elijah. And I couldn't get rid of it, it I just, I had it. But know I, I told nobody, because that's prideful. I mean, who am I that God's gonna use me in some great and powerful way? but I would pray and I would would sense it again. I would constantly have this ongoing sense that God has a calling on my life that is every bit as great as the calling he had on Moses' life. And, And every time I would read about one of these guys, I would go, I think that's what God wants to do with me. And I felt really conflicted about it because I couldn't make it go away, but I was pretty sure that it wasn't from God because who do I think I am? But then I start reading my Bible. And the more I read my Bible, the more I realized I'm not the crazy one. It's everybody else who's crazy. (laughs) See, God has that kind of calling on all of our lives. It's not unusual. It's not strange. God intends to use you to change eternity. God has called you. It says in Ephesians that he is He has custom designed you for good works that you should walk in them and he did it before you were ever born. That that God has been ordering your path. That God has allowed you to suffer the pain that you suffered and he's given you the gifts that you have all so that you could be in a place where when he's ready to use you in some way that no one else might even notice as meaningful, you will be ready and he can work through you and change the world through you. Guys, it's not that I was prideful for thinking that was God's calling on my life, it's the rest of us have set the bar too low. God's called us all like that. The reason we only have Abraham, Moses, David, and those guys is because only a few people actually take the calling seriously. God has that calling on all of us. The problem is most of us don't believe it. After all, God is a big God. He clearly doesn't need me. But here's the big lesson for today God wants to use you precisely because he doesn't need you. Let me say that again. God wants to use you precisely because he doesn't need you, you need him. And, and there's a whole world out there that needs him too. All you have to do is submit to him. And when you do that, he is ready, willing, and able to change the world through you. That's why our motto at Grace Fellowship is loving God, loving people, changing the world. That's not a pipe dream. You know how the world gets changed? One life at a time. I want you to turn to the New Testament. We'll wrap it up with this. Ephesians chapter three. It's in the, toward the back of your Bible after Galatians before Philippians. You come to Ephesians. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter three and, and listen to the way Paul wraps up the first half of the book of Ephesians. He says this, verse 20. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. He is able to do far more abundantly beyond all you could ask him to do. Do you ever not ask God to do something because it's just too much? Nothing's too much for him. You you haven't even thought of the thing yet that he can't do. There's nothing that is beyond him that is a good thing to do. And so he is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. What is that power? It's the Holy Spirit. It's God himself. It's not you who does anything. I I read that verse, I want it to say, and God will do amazing things according to your power. And God may call you to a position that you have just enough power to fulfill. Guys, if you're in a position you have enough power to fulfill, you are not in God's position. Because God calls us to do that which we cannot do because he's going to do it through us. Why? Verse 21, to him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The great heroes of the Bible are a bunch of flawed individuals. The same is true for every impactful Christian down through the ages of church history. The the same is true. Picture in your mind, you don't say any names out loud, picture in your mind one or two people who, who you have just tremendous respect for in their Christian walk one or two godly people, people you look up to and say, man, I, I would like to be more like him. I would like to be more like her. Just get someone in your mind and go, that, that, that's the godliest person I know. That person is just as flawed as you are. God has just as much to work with in you as he has to work with in the most godly Christian you've ever met. The difference is, that some are surrendered to him and others are doing their own thing. God doesn't call the qualified, He qualifies the called. The enemy is a liar and He would love us all to believe that God can't use us for anything great. But here's the simple truth God can use you, God wants to use you. God will use you if you'll just surrender and trust him enough to walk by faith and obey his word. Since the beginning of time, the only necessary qualifications for God to use someone for great things is that we, one, know him, two, trust him, and three, obey him. That's it. When we do those three things, God takes care of the rest. For greater is he that is in you, than he that is in the world. God is not finished with you yet. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, instead of having you stand so I can just pray over you right now, I'm gonna just ask us all, let's take a second. Let's just give God another minute or two. And I, I just want you to bow your head, close your eyes, prepare your heart to spend a minute with God. And we're gonna have some silent prayer. Maybe there's something in your life that needs to be surrendered to God. Maybe you need to be surrendered to God. Maybe something comes to your mind and you're like, I I just keep holding on. This is like my statue of a bull that I just keep bowing down to. And you need to tear the statue down. Just talk to God about that. Maybe trust him enough to let go. On the other side of that coin is... Not something you need to let go of, but something you need to take hold of. Maybe, maybe God's been nudging you. Maybe he's been calling you loudly. Maybe you've put out fleece after fleece and he keeps proving himself. And you need to just say yes to God about something. Maybe he's calling you to walk in a certain direction or walk away from a certain direction. Maybe there's a ministry that he has in mind for you. Maybe there's somebody that you need to reconcile with. I don't know what it is. But I'm trusting the spirit to just make you make you aware of something you need to take hold of. And I encourage you just talk to God. Submit to his will for your life. Lord, we come to you as broken vessels. We come to you as flawed individuals. Some of us are hurting deeply today, and we think, man, I, I I can't do anything right now. Some of us are deeply afraid to actually trust you enough to let go of what you're telling us to let go of and say yes to what you're telling us to say yes to. Some of us, frankly, just don't have enough experience walking with you to, to know how trustworthy you are. And so, God, we, we come before you today, we, we, just, we lift our hands and say, uh, I don't have much to offer, but I give you myself. I've been, I've been afraid, I've been doubting, I've been angry, I've been hiding, but today I give you myself. I want to be a living sacrifice, Lord. I pray you would help each one of us to go beyond this room with this awareness that you are calling us, you have a plan to use us, that you're going to change our lives and change the world through us. Help us to submit to that plan. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus.